0: All a man wanted to do was have breakfast. He just wanted to eat something in the morning. But then the aliens came. And then we take a look at a brutal conspiracy, a real one, known as Project 100,000, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio, I'm your host Jason Carpenter, I'm having a great day, I hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're just gonna jump right into it. Here, grab my hand. Here, hold my hand. You got it? Whee! We're jumping into a portal of stories. Oh swirling, what's the word, mayamasa, mimasa thing. There's a bunch of like swirling colors, we see words and I'm about to speak, float in front of us has nothing to do with the story. Just thought it was a pretty visual. Whee! You're like, Jason, if we had this available, why have we been using helicopters and dirigibles this whole time? This is, we're going to call it, this is the rabbit hole. Just jump in the rabbit hole. That's stupid. Never mind. Forget it. Now we're back on land, and we're just going to walk to the carpenter copter. We're going to have a carpenter copter, and we're going to fly away. I do like that visual, though. We are going to Eagle River, Wisconsin, which, if memory serves me correctly, we've been here before. And honestly, I'm slightly concerned. I think I've actually covered this story before. With with that level of certainty, let's start off with the story. Dling. The year is 1961. It is April 18th. And there's this old farmer. was well, 61. That's not when you're 43. 61 is not old. 61 is, oh, it's just, he could have gone to college while I was in high school, basically. When you're 20, 61 years old is Mumra. It is the oldest man ever to walk the earth. 61, oh no, don't touch him, he might turn to dust. When you're 43, you're like, oh, you have many years ahead of you. Good luck, good sir. 61 years old, his name is Joe Simon, Simon Tun. He's a chicken farmer, so he raises chickens. This story is actually a request from Bennett. Bennett is our resident Bigfoot expert, but this story does not involve Bigfoot. I think this might be the first story I've used of his that doesn't involve Bigfoot. It involves a chicken farmer, though, and I'll keep doing this introduction. He's eating breakfast. Now, two guesses as to what he's eating. Probably eggs. Maybe some chicken. That would be hard to, like, raise a chicken and then, like, cut its head off and eat it. Like, I eat chickens. I eat whole chickens From like Rosars, rotisserie chickens. But I don't think I could like see a little egg hatch and a little yellow chicken pop out of it and then watch it walk around. I mean, you're not stalking it. You do other stuff while it's growing up. But eventually you're like, hey, Henry. And the chicken's like waddling around. Chickens are pretty stupid. but And then one day you're like, oh, I'm so hungry. And then you chop its head off. I don't think I could do that. I can eat nameless chickens that I don't know, but I couldn't eat a chicken I knew. And it's weird because it's the opposite. They say it's easier to kill somebody you don't know. No, 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 that's wrong. It's easier to kill somebody you know than somebody you don't know. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, their final task before you joined, after all the training and stuff like that, you know, holding the gun over your head and jump through tires and all that stuff, you had to be up on a rooftop with a certified member of the IRA, and you'd be up there with your rifle, and the guy would say, Her. And then you'd have to point the rifle and shoot at a total stranger. And if you couldn't do that, you weren't in the IRA. That's one of the hardest things to do. And the reason why this has become a, <laughs> this has become a human murder story now. Sorry, Bennett. The reason why is if you kill somebody you know, you can justify it. If it's somebody you know you can be like oh you know they did these horrible things or they deserved it or they they had these health crisis or they were an alcoholic or a drug user so you can find some way to justify it some way if you have to you can find some way to justify it if it or i was just really really mad at them that day you know they did some, i read the story the other day about this guy who shot his mom no stabbed his stepmom because she was dancing during a Dallas Cowboy touchdown. He had hit a knife underneath a couch cushion and stood up and started stabbing her to death. Because she was celebrating. the. So you can kill people you know for the stupidest things. But to be on a rooftop and to have someone picked out at random and to pull that trigger is is incredibly hard. Very, very incredibly hard. Because it's just completely random. There's no reason why it could be anybody. It's psychologically hard. A lunatic could do it. Somebody who is mentally deficient could do it, but for a normal person, no matter how they, no matter how dedicated they are towards the cause or think they want to do it, they can't. And that was the thing. I, the IRA need, terrorist groups in general, need people who can just kill randomly. They don't want you just killing your relatives. <laughs> it doesn't help. They're probably on the same side as you. They need someone who can go into a British bar, see all the pretty girls talking to people, see the bartender smiling and laughing, see the young soldier sitting there, joking with his buddies, and to put a bomb down and walk out. That's who they need. They need someone completely hardened and stuff like that. Anyways, chickens. Let's go back to killing random chickens. He's eating chickens for breakfast. He's eating chickens for breakfast. And he hears a weird noise. It's 11 a.m. in the morning, too, which is kind of late to eat, eat, I, I eat breakfast. It's kind of late. But anyways, it's 11 a.m. He hears a weird noise outside, a noise he describes as Knobby tires on wet pavement. So... (laughs) That's the only... No, that actually sounds like a chicken or a turkey. (laughs) Wet tires. Sorry. Knobby tire. What's a knobby tire? Knobby tires on wet pavement. (laughs) So he goes outside, because you would if you heard a loud noise like that. And he sees a silver UFO. He describes it as two... Wash bowls turn face to face, so like two big old bowls. It's basically almost like a sphere. That sounds like those aliens from Sesame Street, actually. This big sphere is kind of hovering above the ground, and it lands. It's it, it, just to give you some dimensions. It's twelve feet tall, thirty feet in diameter. So so Sizable. sizable It's not a mothership, but it's it's, it's doable. It's a cruiser. It lands. And a little hatch psh, opens up and a little gangplank, and out walks an, an Italian dude. Now, I'm reading this article, a really fascinating article. There's this website called the Space Lizard Report. right? And they were saying that there was a period of time between 1945 and Betty and Barney Hill, which is one of the most famous UFO abduction stories, where aliens looked totally different all the time you had robots and you had italians in this story and you had guys in glowing suits and tiny guys and big guys and all this stuff and they said once betty and barney happened and uh, the book communion came out it all kind of coalesced into this is what aliens look like they have the tiny little head the grays basically and they were saying that there was a period in time where you never really knew what was going to get off the craft and i'll take a look at that phenomenon in the future because i have some interesting theories on that but for now bunch of Italians get off this spaceship. Now, they weren't actually ethnically Italian. They were they looked Italian. They had dark skin, olive skin, and there's no notes on how much body hair they had or the gold medallions, but they were they also were only five feet tall, which is not stereotypically how Italians are known to be. But anyways, these five foot tall Italian looking aliens, one of them gets off the ship, right? And he sees two other aliens through the hatch. But one of them gets off the ship and walks down. And he's holding a giant vase with two... Like a jug. A giant jug with two handles on it. And he walks up to Joe and he's just holding it. Now, and there's no, no words being exchanged. And Joe's looking at this alien. The alien's looking at him with this jug. And Joe realizes, oh, he needs water. And I can do that. I can go get you some water. So he takes the jug from the alien... Walks over to the nearest water source, pumps some water in it. So he gets the water. He brings it back. Now, this might be the first case of interstellar trade. Yeah, yeah, ancient aliens, Nazca Lines, all that stuff. Nazca Lines has been debunked. Ancient aliens have, for the most part, been debunked. This is what we're talking about. When we're talking about the very first... I'm going to put my flag in this. This is the very first encounter of interstellar trade. You're going to be like, Jason, you did a story six months back that took place three months before that, maybe. But I don't remember that one. He gives these aliens this water. And the aliens go, hmm, yes, they don't actually say that. No words are spoken. But in their heads, they're thinking, let's give this dude something. So... As Joe is standing there and they're taking the water into the ship, he sees somebody like flipping his little like spatula thing. He's cooking. Someone's cooking inside the spaceship, which seems like a bad, which seems like a bad idea for a couple reasons. One, carbon monoxide poisoning. But maybe they love carbon monoxide. Maybe they hate oxygen. Two. You have an interstellar spaceship. I mean, maybe this is just not the mothership. Maybe this is the thing, but there's not a lot of room. Like, you don't have a hot plate in a helicopter. Like, you can have a kitchen in a sub because they're so huge, but something that's 12 feet by 30 feet. Do you really have, do you really have room for an oven in that thing? But apparently they did because they ended up making him pancakes. They made him four little pancakes, probably about the size of your hand probably the size of your hand, a normal human hand. Don't be a giant and be like, are they this big? And smash all my equipment as you put. And apparently now you know where I live. You can bust through my door and slam your hand on my computer. A normal human hand. They're about that big. So they give him four pancakes and then they take off. And as they're flying away, he goes, "No, here's the thing. You just give some a- human- looking aliens, they weren't big slug people, they weren't reptilians or grays or any of the weirdo gross looking kinds. An alien just give you give some aliens water and they just give you four flakes of food. First off, how do you know that they're food? Secondly, would you eat them? Now, I would. I, I would might be hesitant and might- definitely when I was younger, like as the alien was like handing me something, I, I would just eat it. Now, they'll be like, oh, no, that was our map. Our map is, is on pancakes. You idiot. We'll never find our way home now. But um, if they gave me some food and I knew it was food, I would probably eat one of them. I'm like, mmm, tastes like mysteries of the cosmos. But anyways, he ate one of them. He said it tasted like cardboard. And he's like, damn you aliens. I give you delicious water and you gave me nothing but cardboard. He's like shaking his fist. The ship's flying away. They're like, oh, can you believe it? He ate our cardboard. (laughs) And they disappear into the space place. (laughs) They disappear into the cosmos. So anyways, but he did keep three of them. And he still had them for a long time. He ended up reporting this to the media, which he highly regretted. He said he wished that he had never done it because the reporters annoyed him all the time. He... Imagine how he would feel nowadays. I can't even watch the news without being annoyed, let alone having a bunch of reporters on my front lawn. And I'm a journalism major. That's what my degree's in. And I can't stand reporters nowadays. But anyways, in 1961, this guy's getting super annoyed by them being like, can you show us the pancakes? And he would. There's photos of Joe holding a tiny little pancake. It looks like a burnt piece. It looks like a pancake, but it's super thin. You can kind of see through it. It's probably not as big as the hand, actually. I think it's as big as your palm. Once I made that descriptor, I was like, ah, I think I, I, think I overshot it. But anyways, and he said, tastes like cardboard. One of the pancakes was sent to a laboratory. And apparently, it's, okay, so it is it is a real pancake in a sense. It's flattened material. It's, its ingredients are flour, sugar, and grease. So those are all things you can get pretty much anywhere on Earth. I was reading one article and it said, mysteriously, the pancakes had no salt. Now, I don't know anything about cooking or baking. I barely know a lot about preparing food at any point. I have almost given myself food poisoning multiple times and have given myself food poisoning at least two or three times. I'm very, very bad at food preparation. So I don't know anything about it. So when I read that, and again, I'm skeptical, but I'm also an idiot. So when I read that, I was like, well, golly, there's no salt in them. What a mystery. How do you make a pancake without salt? And then I went, I researched this story back when Bennett sent it to me. And thank you, Bennett, for the recommendation. I researched it back then. Then when I was going, like rereading it to get these notes together for this episode, I was like, "No salt? Well, nab it. How is that possible?" And then I thought, "Well, I wonder if you need to salt to make pancakes in the first place." So I typed in "no salt pancakes" and apparently apparently not only can you make pancakes without salt, it's not a super common ingredient. Like you can throw salt in there or not. So that's don't don't waste my time article on the internet. Don't tell me it's unusual to not have salt when It doesn't seem to be like a make or break ingredient. So people have thought it was a hoax. Here's my question about this whole thing. I get why people would hoax alien stuff for attention or because they really... Okay, with alien stuff, it either really happened or you're doing it for attention. You're faking it for attention or you've mistaken a natural phenomenon for something else. Or you're having some sort of mental breakdown. Now... This whole experience, he gets the water jug, he fills it up, he goes, he gets a couple pancakes, the UFO takes off. If he was just doing this for attention, he could have just said, well, a bunch of aliens, a bunch of Italians landed in my front yard and I gave him some water and they flew away. The fact that he has the pancakes, why would you manufacture such stupid evidence for your hoax, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like, it would have been much easier to be like, look at this piece of metal I found, or look at these indentations in my yard, or look at any other number of phenomenon you could easily fake to support your story why space pancakes why why would you then go out of your way to make disgusting saltless pancakes that taste like cardboard and be like i only got four of them I, the idea the, the it's that whole thing that i always say about 911 if if the government made up the whole thing and it was not al qaeda right if the government put bombs in the building and it was all this inside job to wage war against Iraq and Afghanistan, and they made it up, why are, what is it, 17 of the 19 hijackers from Saudi Arabia? Like, if you're going to make it up, they should have made all, because they're making up the identities of all these people, they should have said, these all these hijackers came from Iraq and Afghanistan. They could have said, hijackers came from Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan. It was this whole thing, because they're making it up. They're making it up from the ground up, so why would such a key detail be our allies? That's the same thing here. If, you're, if he's making it up, why would he miss the the main piece of evidence that he... The, the linchpin of his story is the pancakes. So if he's making it up, why would he make up such a stupid detail? Why wouldn't he make up a detail of, they handed me this amulet, or they handed me this, this polished rock. And then, or I lost it. Because a lot of these stories, they go, well, they gave me this thing and I lost it. Or here, something that is less stupid than pancakes. I honestly believe that this guy got pancakes from an alien. I honestly think that, yes, the most likely answer is it's a total hoax. But the second most likely answer is because the evidence is so dumb that it's probably true. Because otherwise, if it was a hoax from the ground up, it would be a better executed hoax. And in the end, he wished that he hadn't told anybody about it anyways. It is possible that Joe Simonson just wanted to sit down and enjoy a morning meal of some chicken and some eggs. And instead, also enjoyed a disgusting cardboard pancake from an alien traveler billions of miles away. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story. Our next story is actually one of those stories that I love. It's one of those conspiracy theories that actually happened. And affected people's lives. And I was talking about this on the live stream, the Halloween live stream. People get so focused on conspiracy theories that are super sexy, but most likely aren't true. Or have so many details that aren't true that they've pretty much become a fairy tale. And there's conspiracies all the time that actually have happened that affect people's lives. The year is 1966. We are leaving behind Joe's farm. I have a bunch of chickens and the carpenter copter. I'm trying to save them. I'm like, live with me, guys. We won't eat you. We won't eat you. And you go, Jason, didn't you just tell me you you eat whole chickens all the time and you have no problem with it as long as you don't know their names? I was like, yeah, but I know these guys' names. That one is, um, mm, that chicken's looking really nervous. It's like, dude, my name's Larry, man. My name's Larry. Remember me? I'm, like, starting to salivate as I can't remember his name. Anyways, we hear a bunch of chickens getting slaughtered as the helicopter flies off into the sunset. So it's October 1966. The Vietnam War is in full swing. And so is the War on Poverty. Lyndon B. Johnson's... President Johnson's War on Poverty. That was a big thing he was going for, trying to bring everyone out of utter, utter poverty. And hence the name, War on Poverty. And... There was this guy, his Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. And I want to give a shout out to this. Most of this information, it's from an article called uh, McNamara's Boys on History.net by Hamilton Gregory. He's actually written a book on this topic and he's an expert with this story. So I want to give a shout out to him because it's all this information is coming from this source. McNamara, Robert McNamara goes, listen, we got to do more in Vietnam. We got to get more people over there. We got to get new good soldiers over there. President Johnson's trying to get all these inner city kids out of poverty. Peanut butter jelly, guys. Let's Reese's peanut butter cup this. So Robert McNamara's looking at this and he goes, let's get recruitment drives in the inner city. I didn't know this before I read about this. But the military is mostly staffed with middle class, the children of the middle class. I always thought it was people like Boys in the Hood where they're like, uh, I can't get out of the ghetto. This totally sucks. I'm going to join the military. And then, Ricky! (sighs) A little spoiler alert for a 40-year-old movie. I knew that wasn't the bulk of the military, but I figured that it was lower to middle class. But it's mostly all middle class military, especially back in the 60s. Now, of course, they had the draft going on. But... When you had, when you had, and you would get people on the verge of like, the, but this wasn't like lower class economically. This was, they wanted poor people to be in the army. Now they wanted people who were raised in abject poverty. Now, before you join the military, you have to take the ASFAB, which is the armed services, vocational, something, something. Every kid in America has to take it. At least when I was a kid, we all had to take it. And the military recruiter would come out and talk to you and all that stuff. The, they, it's like a test, and it determines what, what branch you'll be in the military and how smart you are. Like we'll, Basically, it will determine not only who, where you'll be at in the military, but are you too stupid to be in the military in, to begin with? It's basically an IQ test on that level. And a lot of the people in poverty were failing the ass. They were getting drafted. They were getting recruited. And they were failing the test. Now you go, well, dude, they're just getting drafted. Why not just put them out there with a gun? Who cares if they're stupid? It's a huge... We're not talking... We're talking force Gump, stupid. We're not talking... We're not talking... Hey, man, I'm really not good at pre-algebra. We're talking me not know math. We're talking Mungo-level intelligence in the jungle of Vietnam. And... Robert McNamara was like, we're going to get these kids, we're going to take them out of poverty, we're going to give them a job, we're going to give them a career path, we're not going to put them into combat, okay, that's not our plan, we're going to use them in support roles, and then we can take our other, more educated people, put them into combat, put them into these other roles. Now, Robert McNamara was a firm believer in technology. He believed that the Vietnam War would be win with computers and there's just giant robots walking through the jungle kill, kill, Terminator. He thought that technology and all these analytical models would win the day. And the newest invention, videotapes. He felt that if you could take an idiot soldier, an idiot who came out of inner city Chicago, you could sit him down, show him video cassettes all day long, teach him, to be as competent as someone who had had a high school education. Because these guys who were failing the ASFAB were co- clocking in. Like, at if you scored a 20 on your ASFAB, that's about a fifth level education. Again, these guys are, are, are morons. They're not people who are like, yeah, I dropped out of high school because I got a girl pregnant when I was sophomore. These guys are fifth grade level education. Because those guys who did a war like sophomore, yeah, they were poor. They got drafted, they passed the test, they got in, no problem. This war on poverty was America's dumbest citizens being put into America's war. And Robert McNamara said, let's do this. We're going to call it Project 100,000 because every year it's a tragedy, he said. A tragedy that every year 100,000 men were not able to join the military because they failed out of the SFAB. Peanut butter jelly. All these guys are poor, so we're helping Johnson. We need more men over there. People were flipping out they thought this was the stupidest idea ever at one point uh, robert mcnamara defense secretary robert mcnamara decorated official too he wasn't just some guy picked out of the crowd he also had military background he was given some speech at like a veterans hospital and and a captain stood up and said what you're doing is wrong which you, you're <laughs> supposed to do that in the military you're not supposed to just jump up and start criticizing people you can if they're lower than you but Robert McNamara outranked him. I don't remember what his actual rank was. But, I mean, defense secretary, for one. People were really upset. And they're like, listen, this is not going to end well. And Robert McNamara's like, no, no, this is going to be great. These are my boys. McNamara's boys. He actually called, They were actually called new standards men. Because there was basically new standards. Lower standards, really. To get them into the military. Because of this program, between 1966 and 1971, when it ended there was an additional 354,000 men allowed to join into the military and go to Vietnam. A very, very large number. I mean, the military, I think our military right now is like 2 million. So, yeah, a lot. And and you're, you're starting to have people who just aren't competent. Let's look at some of these quotes about these soldiers here. Quote, These were the guys who could not hack it during regular basic training. It was painful to watch. Some of them could not even get the hang of so simple a thing as standing at attention, and otherwise severely unsuited for military life. Here's another quote. This was from a war correspondent who who served in Vietnam named Joseph Galloway. The young men of Project 100,000 couldn't read. They had to be taught to tie their boots. They often failed basic training and were recycled over and over until they finally reached some low standard and were declared trained and ready. They could not be taught any more demanding job than trigger pulling. So most of them went straight into combat, where the learning curve is steep and deadly. Here's another quote. This was from Colonel David Hackworth. Project 100,000 was implemented to produce more grunts for the killing fields of Vietnam. It took unfit recruits from the bottom of the barrel and rushed them to Vietnam. The result was human applesauce. So despite the idea that these guys weren't going to see combat, or that wasn't going to be their main thing, a lot of them ended up in the Army, a lot ended up in the Marines, and it was a bloodbath. If you're having a hard time tying your shoes, you're going to have a hard time operating an m 16 there was this one guy who was in the military, and his nephew was put into Project 100,000. And he started making calls, and he's like, don't, no, take him out, please. This guy, he's an idiot. His family started writing the senator saying, "He's listen, he's not smart enough to do this stuff. And they were really pushing to get him, if they couldn't get him out of the military, get him into a support role. He ended up, he was in Vietnam, on the like front lines. And one of his buddies got shot and he ran out to help him and took a bullet right through the neck and died. And the veteran went on to say, that destroyed our family. Like, we lost, the basically, like, you lose faith in your government when it can't protect people who are mentally handicapped. At a level, these guys, when, when you're talking about ASFAB 20, you're talking about people who have about an IQ around 80. IQ around 70, you are considered mentally handicapped. So uh, slightly above, they are Forrest Gump level at that point. Maybe a little bit above. But the machine kept turning. And Robert McNamara was like, no, this is absolutely working. I got these young men coming up to me and they're saying, thank you, sir. I never would have made it. I got a job. I got a career path. Thank you for lowering the standards. And Robert McNamara was hearing these stories. But everyone else on the ground was seeing the results. The casualties out of the 354,000 men, and women actually, recruited during this drive. Out of that amount, 5,400 of them died in Vietnam. Which was, they had a three times more likely chance of being killed in Vietnam than people who were brought in through other means. I.e. passing the test as it was intended. Getting in not because of some sort of pet project by Robert McNamara. So you're like, okay, 350,000 people sign up, you lose 5,400, that's not bad. Well, what happened was the tragedy really started after the war, or as they were leaving. So you had 354,000. Now, these guys couldn't stand the detention, were drug users, were AWOL. They were people who were not well fitted for the society they came from. And now you put them in a very regimented military society. These groups, these two groups, you had inner-city black kids and rural white kids. is really what Project 100,000 was taking people from. It was taking young dummies from the farm and young dummies from the streets. And you're putting them in this super regimented lifestyle, and it's just not working out. So when they were leaving the military... They weren't getting honorable discharges. They were getting less than honorable discharge because they mouthed off at an officer or they couldn't keep their bed right or whatever thing, or AWOL or something serious like drug use. So they get recruited or drafted into the military, even though they were too stupid to do it in the first place. Get sucked into this machine, survive, bombs going off, getting all of these mental issues of having to be in Vietnam. And then you get a less than honorable discharge. They come back home, nobody will hire them. So when we look back at that program, they say people people in this Project 100,000, which the goal was, the, the stated goal, was to lift them out of poverty, give them a career path, let them serve in the military, and then when they come out, they have military experience, which is always very, very attractive to employers. When they came back, statistically, they either stayed in their same economic level, or did worse, because now no one would hire them because they're coming back with papers showing that they were less than honorably discharged from the military. And it doesn't say for what. It could have been that they slept with the general's daughter, which is kind of sexy. It could have been that they were running heroin. You don't know. It just says less than honorable discharge. So a massive backfire. And this program went from being called McNamara's Boys To McNamara's morons, and he, Robert McNamara, that name drove him nuts, and it haunted him for years. And even up until the point where he died, he started admitting mistakes, like, we could have done this differently in Vietnam, yeah, we should have had this situation, like, maybe we shouldn't have done this. Even to his grave, he was like, no, McNamara's boys, Project 100,000, that was a good plan, we helped people and everyone else just was standing around his deathbed, kind of shaking their head, going, It wasn't. It was a terrible plan. McNamara's morons. McNamara's boys. Whatever title you want to use for it. It was a failed program. It tried to pull men out of poverty, but it failed so many of them. It was a program that was designed to help and ended up hurting a good amount of people. But either way, the military has now put in rules that do not allow them to take people who score under 20 on the ASFAB. That has been the rule since the end of Project 100,000. But the question remains, will that rule stand when America finds itself in another brutal and drawn-out war?